Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, July 21st, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 38, verses 1 to 28. As Jeremiah continues to preach that Jerusalem will fall and only those who surrender to Babylon will live, he finds himself thrown into a muddy cistern by those who reject the word of God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appold. Pastor Appold serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hi, Tim. Good to be on with you. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little bit of context here in Jeremiah chapter 38. Big picture, more focused. What do we need to know about Jeremiah, his ministry, the history at large as we go into this chapter today? My guess is that if you're uh, at you as the host, Tim, have probably become an expert on this time period, but it is fairly um, unknown. It's not as uh, common knowledge to uh, to most of us, and I'm going to guess most of our listeners. Although, if you if you're a faithful sharper iron listener, you probably hear the same historical introduction every day. Um, Jeremiah's ministry covers uh, quite a, a broad spectrum. Um, it's, it's about 40 years, and he goes from the time of King Josiah, which is a name that um, is somewhat well-known to us. King Josiah was one of the very few um, good kings of Judah, um, but his sons after him were wicked. And uh, even though Josiah um, has many reforms, positive reforms, um, tears down idols, restores um, true worship in the temple, um, it's not enough. And so Jeremiah's ministry is, its it, I think it's interesting to think about this. You've got these great reforms happening, but at the same time, um, you know, the, the revival didn't quite touch the heart. And so all of the outward changes that Josiah undertakes, um, there's still this kind of general apathy towards the Lord, apostasy even. And what you hear in Jeremiah's prophecy is, look, God has threatened to bring the judgment and now it's going to come. So that's kind of big picture. Um, where we are in the book here in chapter uh, 38, we are right before the the fall of Jerusalem. And I think it, it's good for us to kind of understand some of the um, the machinations that are taking place around Judah at this time, because what we're going to hear in the reading is um, King Zedekiah asking Jeremiah, are you sure this is going to happen? Is Maybe there's a chance that some, you know, we're going to be delivered by one of our allies. So let me see if I can, can do kind of a, a little um, Middle Eastern history there in the, right around the year 600 BC. What you've got is Judah, kind of caught between three bigger empires. To the east is Babylon, which we know the name Nebuchadnezzar. To the north is Assyria, which uh, some of some of our listeners will remember the, the name Sennacherib. And to the south and the west a little bit is Egypt, which we're familiar with, um, although I, I can't remember the pharaoh's name right now. And those three empires are all sort of kicking Judah 
around. Well, they're kicking each other around, and Judah is caught in between. So, kind of the big the big years to think of in 612 BC, Assyria falls, and its capital city is Nineveh, and everyone rejoices because Assyria and the Ninevites were wicked. But who takes over then? Well, nature abhors a vacuum, right? So the Egyptians um, gain some somewhat of the upper hand. And as that happens, Judah kind of falls in with Egypt and they become not, um, Egypt didn't send like, you know, an Egyptian ruler to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, but um, the, the Judeans are under the power of Egypt until the Babylonians come in and the Babylonians are stronger than the Egyptians. So in the year, um, in the year 605, there's a, uh, I don't know, somewhat famous battle, the Battle of Carchemish. You probably are an expert on this, Tim. And uh, the Babylonians defeat the Egyptians. And so now Babylon is established. Okay. I think the value of knowing that is just, it helps you think about um, little Judah in the middle of these superpowers and these super military powers too. And who are they going to turn to? Who are they going to look to to provide some kind of stability, some kind of support, um, some kind of a solid foundation? And um, I think what comes up quite often in the book of Jeremiah is um, there: none of these are going to help you. Your only hope is to turn to the Lord. Don't trust Egypt, who's just been defeated by Babylon, and you're going to have to submit to the, um, you know, the Babylonians coming in. Right. Okay. And well, and, and we talked a little bit of this yesterday in chapter 37, where, and again, this is the reign of King Zedekiah that we're talking about. So we're near the very bitter end, as you said, right before the fall into Jerusalem. And one of the things that figured prominently in, in chapter 37, which I think bleeds over in today, is this, there's a brief lull in the siege of Jerusalem there toward the very end, where the Egyptian army, probably at the request of Zedekiah, comes and tries to to fight against Babylon. It's interesting, just in general, when it comes to ancient history, how the Egyptians are players in all of this. But even when they get defeated, say at the Battle of Carchemish, it seems like they still retain some semblance of power or an, an ability to to kind of strike back at other times. Whereas, say, like Assyria, once they were defeated there in 612 BC, as you brought up, you don't really hear from them much anymore. Yeah. But Egypt yeah. is always just kind of hanging around. And as you said, there's always this temptation for the people of God to go back to Egypt, you know, to think in terms of the Exodus, to put their trust in that foreign power or any foreign power. And and Jeremiah spent much of the last chapter, and he's going to do the same in this chapter again, telling King Zedekiah that's no good, that your only hope is to put your trust in the Lord. And of course, in this case, and this is perhaps what's shocking to Zedekiah and particularly his officials as well, and it sounds even traitorous, is that to put their hope in the Lord in this case means to surrender to Babylon, which is just a, a shocking thing, I think, for the political leaders. Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, and that's what, you know, um, Jeremiah is going to be accused of the great sin of being unpatriotic, right? And being a, he's a traitor because he's saying, he's saying that God is on the side of the Babylonians. How can that be, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, just thinking about how, and this will come up at the end of chapter 38, but we should say it here at the beginning. If you put yourself in um, King Zedekiah's shoes, you know, here's the king. He's got the prophet Jeremiah, but he's got all these other advisors. 
And what are they recommending that he does? Well, surrender is always the, you know, that's a, that's the coward's way, right? And you can't surrender. We're going to win. And maybe if we just make an alliance with the right army, the Egyptians, and maybe we can get some other mercenaries to come in and we can drive back the Babylonians, right? And they probably want the prophet to say, yeah, and God, you know, God is going to get us out of this just like he always has. But Jeremiah's message has always been and continues to be here in chapter 38. No, it's, there's no, this is God's, God's judgment is falling on us and we, we have to go into exile. Hmm. Now it's, maybe we should point this out too, Tim, the exile has actually kind of already begun. So Babylon didn't just come into Judah all at once and, and burn it down and carry everything away, steal all the goods. They, they did it. There were three, three deportations, if you will. So the first one was in the year 605. And that what the Babylonians do is they take the king, whose name is jo- now these names are going to sound That's so right. familiar. Yeah. Um, they, they, they sound almost like I'm repeating myself. They take King Jehoiakim and they kill him. And they put Jehoiachin in place of him. That's in the year 605. Okay, So Jehoiakim is gone. Jehoiachin is in his place. And Jeremiah lived through that and prophesied through that. Then in 597, the Babylonians come back and they say, hey, we didn't take enough in the first place. You've given us, you keep resisting us. So we're going to punish you a little bit more. And they do something similar. Instead of killing the king, they take away King Jehoiachin, they carry him off into exile, and they put his uncle in his place, and they his name then becomes King Zedekiah. Okay, and so now ten years have passed since Zedekiah has been put on the throne, not by you know God's well, it is God's doing, but by this foreign power. And uh, King Zedekiah is the king who we're going to encounter with Jeremiah today. Mm, yeah, and I think we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about Zedekiah as a as a king, as a an actor within this narrative. We talked a little bit about him yesterday, and he. While we certainly know he's an evil and wicked king, there are some things about the way that he acts, particularly as he interacts with Jeremiah, that are somewhat sympathetic. He he almost gets it, it seems, at times. And I, I'd like to hear some of your thoughts as, as we come to that. So, all right, we're here at the end, King Zedekiah's reign, toward the very end, probably only about a year left in his reign, and Jeremiah is still preaching faithfully at the time. So we pick up now in Jeremiah chapter 38 at the first verse. Now Shephatiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pashur, Jukal, the son of Shalamiah, and Pashur, the son of Malchiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, but he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. Then the officials said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in this city, and the hands of all the people, by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, 
letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. That's through verse 6 of our text. Pastor Appled, lots of things here that we've heard Jeremiah preach before. Verse, verses 2 and 3, where you get the recounting of what he said. We were talking about this earlier. It sounds pretty unpatriotic. And, and in fact, it, it, they even say, look, he's weakening the hands of our soldiers. One of the things that stood out to me was what they say at the end of verse 4. This man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. It reminded me a little bit of when King Elijah, or sorry, King Ahab tells the prophet Elijah, he calls him the troubler of Israel, that this seems to be a problem for the people of Israel and Judah both, that they think the prophets are out to do them harm, when in fact the word of God that they're preaching, even when it's a matter of judgment, is actually for their ultimate good. Yeah, this is, um, you, it sounds like these guys, we don't, we're not given their positions, but it sounds like they were probably military types, right? So some kind of military advisors to the king, Zedekiah. It's interesting that Zedekiah says, look, I can't oppose you, right? It's almost like he's saying, well, you guys, you're in, you're really in charge. And if you think of Jerusalem as a city under siege, well, yes, the king is the quote unquote figurehead, but who's really running the city when you're under siege? It's going to be the military leaders. So these are probably military um, advisors to the king, and they're very concerned with, well, what is the, what's the esprit de corps, right? What is the, what are the soldiers hearing? And Jeremiah is saying, essentially, we need, we all need to surrender. And that's not just my advice, but Jeremiah is even saying, thus says the Lord, right? And like you said, this was, he'd been saying this his whole ministry. (laughs) Um, Now, there were times where Jeremiah would say, perhaps if we turn, the Lord will relent of this disaster. And so there's always this, yes, it's, it's possible that the Lord will relent like he did with Nineveh when Jonah went up to Nineveh, um, like he did in the days of Hezekiah, like he did in the time of Josiah. You know, the, the Lord can delay his judgment, but now the message is loud and clear. Um, Jerusalem is has fallen under siege, and it's going to fall. So um, that, that's why they're so opposed to Jeremiah. They're thinking only, purely in kind of worldly terms, what's good for the military, what's good for the city, we've got to fight. And anyone who says otherwise is knocking down morale. And, and I think that's the struggle here with Zedekiah, with the military commanders, um, and with Jeremiah's message is, if you look at the situation from without faith in, in God, um, well, you're going to be looking for maybe Egypt can come and save us, Maybe we can hold off the Babylonians if we just all work hard enough together. We can make Jerusalem great again. Um, and Jeremiah's message is, no, this, this must ha- we need to go into exile. And only then is there restoration. I mean, it certainly is a counterintuitive message. For, I think for any nation, you know, if you just think about it on a political level, like you said, these are probably military leaders, and this isn't what they want the troops hearing. And so it, it seems like a totally counterintuitive. And then even from the perspective of what God has told his people and the promises he's given them about the line of David and, and all of, you know, the land that he's given them, there is a certain, well, hold on a second, God, how are you going to keep those promises? And, and Jeremiah has 
talked about that in previous places, but all of that adds up to Jeremiah continuing to preach this truth and the people continuing not to understand and not to believe. And in this case particularly, it leads to him being thrown into a pit, into a cistern that's full of mud. He sinks down into the mud. I think this is one of those places, if you hear anything about Jeremiah in Sunday school as a child, this is one of the images that you'll get of Jeremiah, is in a pit in the mud. And, and you pointed out to me, Pastor Apple, that there's some similarities we could probably draw here between what happens to Jeremiah and what happens in a greater way to our Lord in his passion. Yeah, Jeremiah's, um, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah is, stands out um, in comparison with some of the other major prophets for a number of reasons. But one of the one of the things is in Jeremiah, you get much more of the biography of Jeremiah, right? So you hear a lot more about um, his life and events that happened. Um, you get a little bit of that with Isaiah um, and a little bit with, say, Hosea, who had, you know, he married, you hear about his marriage to this a lot of his sufferings. And so I think one of the, the things that happens then is Jeremiah's life um, shows that the prophet, the message and the messenger um, are inter, intertwined, right? So Jeremiah can't just say, look, don't hurt me. I'm just the messenger. He might want to say that, um, but it doesn't work that way. The message and the messenger go together. And I think he becomes a um, maybe one of the the most uh what's the right word here tim he's well he's a type of jesus who is the the word made flesh so the word speaks through all of the prophets and in their in their words they communicate the word of the lord but also in their own in their own lives they show something of what the what the word made flesh is going to do and in jeremiah what you see is the suffering that um, that our Lord Jesus is going to undergo on a greater scale. And in Jeremiah 2, we'll see in a minute, you do have these little deliverances. So maybe we could call them um, mini vindications or little resurrections. Um, and I think here you've got a little, it's like Jeremiah is thrown down and he's dead in this pit. In the, he's stuck in the mud um, and he's going to be raised up. So the prophet, the, the ultimate prophet, well, turns out his life is going to follow the same pattern. We've, we've mentioned this in the past about Jeremiah, that you know his life often mirrors our Lord's, or you know, he's a type, as you said. But why is it that the Lord gives us these types in the Old Testament and not just say the the verbal prophecies like Isaiah chapter 7 you know the that the virgin will give birth to a son or here in Jeremiah 23 that the branch will come from David who will be called the Lord is our righteousness why these life prophecies these types that we see as well yeah the and when we talk about types we should we should probably define the term because it's not a common one right um, when we talk about a type we're talking about a person an institution or an event of the Old Testament that foreshadows something of the New Testament. So um, I, I talk with my congregation this way. It's like, think of the difference between verbal prophecies, like you just mentioned, the virgin shall conceive, and visual prophecies. So even in the, um, in the sacrifices of this one is maybe the most easy for us to see in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, you have these prophecies 
prefigurements of Christ's own sacrifice. And I, I think we can, it's a good question to ask, why does God do it this way? Um, and you can kind of give a double, a twofold answer. One, um, he does it this way because of our what we need, right? We are people who need not just words, but we need to actually see the words beginning to have their fulfillment, or they, um, you can see in, say, the Exodus, the Lord isn't just saying, one day I'm going to save you. He actually does it. He performs the, the, his saving deeds, his mighty deeds in time. Um, but that also works um, with, he wants his people to know, um, even in the Old Testament, what the Messiah is going to do. And he wants them not just to hear about it, but he wants them to have a visual um, a visual representation of that. So you get the sufferings, not only the vindication, but you get the sufferings of um, Moses. You get the sufferings of Jeremiah. So that when Jesus comes along and he speaks about how the Son of Man, the Christ, must suffer, well, the disciples say, how can that be? Well, Remember, Jeremiah suffered. Remember, Moses suffered. Remember the the sacrifices of old. This was always the plan. It's not a it's not a mistake. Um, so part of the answer is because we need to see it, right? Our own the weakness of um, sinful human nature needs not just one promise, but we need lots of promises. And we need to see them. But I think also God um, God is a God who delights. The Lord delights in not just um, being a minimalist, but um, he's a maximalist. So he doesn't want to just say, look, I told you once, someday I'm going to save you. He shows again and again and again, and he gives more types than um, we need because he wants to, because he loves to. With with Jesus then as the fulfillment of the Jeremiah being the type— in, in what ways do we see Jesus surpass what Jeremiah does in terms of suffering in this case? Yeah, there's a, a great passage in, um, I know it's in Matthew, I was just going through this with my congregation um, earlier this week, where Jesus asks the disciples, "What are who do people think I am? Who do they say I am? And you get the, some people say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah. So some people saw Jesus's actions and they said, it's like Jeremiah is back, right? He's doing the same things as Jeremiah did. Um, but he surpasses Jeremiah um, in, a, in a lot of ways, right? Um, so Jeremiah is the, the suffering prophet. Um, his, his book is full of lamentation. Um, and in the book of Lamentations, you can hear him crying, weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, think of some of the ways that Jesus, um, Jesus's own passion, his own suffering surpasses Jeremiah's. Um, Jeremiah suffers because the people reject him, um, but Jesus suffers um, because they reject him and he suffers on their behalf, right? He's not only suffering uh, because he's bringing a word that people don't like, but he's also suffering as the substitution for them. So Jeremiah is not a substitutionary um, sufferer, right? He's not a vicarious sufferer who's making satisfaction by his suffering, but Jesus really is, right? He really is the one who takes upon himself the destruction that's happening to the city. I mean, wouldn't it be great if 
um, if the people could just say, well, look, all this destruction that's coming on Jerusalem, we're going to kind of funnel it onto your shoulders, Jeremiah, and we're going to put it on you. And then you're going to you're going to bear it away. Well, that doesn't that's not what's happening there. But when Jesus comes along, that is what happens. The Lamb of God who bears away the sins of the world. Uh, that, that's a fantastic image there that you've given us, a fantastic way that Jeremiah points us toward Christ, and we see his greater suffering on our behalf. In terms of the suffering of Jeremiah, then, first pointing us to our Lord and what he does in an even greater way, is there also a sense in which we as Christians today can see Jeremiah's sufferings as an example for our own lives as Christians? Yeah, I think... I, I think uh, I remember reading this where Luther said this somewhere. Okay, so but this is a good Lutheran pastor answer. Somewhere Luther once said, I think it was in, uh, he wrote a book, um, kind of an introduction to the New Testament and said, what should, what should you look for in the Gospels? When, you re- when I read the, and this is good um, pastoral advice, a lot of people want to know, when I, when I read the Bible, what should I be looking for? And he says, first, you need to see Christ as a gift for you. Right. So all that he does, all that he says is as a gift. What we would say, this is gospel. Jesus is God's gift to us, for us. But then Luther goes, does go on to say, and once you see him and receive him as a gift, then you see him as your example. And I think you can do the same thing here with Jeremiah. I think this is a, a faithful way to read the book. Um, Jeremiah foreshadows Jesus, the suffering um, prophet. Uh, who weeps over the city and who Jesus will suffer on behalf of the city. But he also is the the faithful prophet, right? He's a martyr who endures these things and doesn't say, well, I guess if you're going to throw me into the pit, I'll take it all back. You know, he continues to speak the truth and he's willing to bear the reproach. He's willing to bear the, um, the hatred of his own um, countrymen because he's he's an example then of courage. He's an example of steadfastness and fidelity. Mm. So still today, Christians are called to that same faithfulness and fidelity that if the world would try to throw us in a pit, that we too would stick to what the Lord has given us and proclaim it boldly. We need to take our break here on Sharper Iron. We're talking Jeremiah chapter 38 with Pastor David Appold. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, July 21st. We are studying Jeremiah chapter 38 verses 1 to 28 with Pastor David Appold. He's the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Apple, prior to the break, we were looking at verses 1 to 6 of the chapter. And in verse 6, you get this 
the detail that Jeremiah gives, again, one of the more famous details, I think, in the in the book of Jeremiah, that he's thrown into this cistern that has no water and he sinks in the mud. Is that just a, a detail that's there because it's literally what happened, or is there another theological connection we can make? Yeah, always beware of the false dichotomy, right? Um, <laughs> we don't we don't want to always fall into this either or. So yes, this really literally happened to Jeremiah, um, but the things that happen um, happen for a reason. And in God's um, providence, in his guiding of history, these real literal events like sinking up your way in mud do have some kind of, they also have a, a prophetic quality to them. So um, with them being sunk in the mud as a, a very, um, a near-death experience. If you look in the Psalms, you can see there's a, a great Psalm of Christ's Passion in Psalm 69 that when you read it, um, it says right at the header there of Psalm 69 that this is a Psalm of David. But when you read in the New Testament, Jesus, it's applied to Jesus as if it was not a Psalm of David, but it's really a Psalm about Jesus speaking in his uh, from his experience. And there in 69, there's a couple of places where it says, deliver me, O God, um, for I've been cast into the mud. I don't have it right in front of me here. Um, yeah, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies. And I don't think David was ever actually physically sunk in the mud. And Jesus was never physically sunk in the mud. Jeremiah was, right? Um, however... David and Jesus were in the mud. They were sunk down, um, so to speak, metaphorically, in um, they were sunk down in hatred of their enemies. And so this becomes a poetic way of saying, deliver me from whatever is oppressing me. Um, now, in Jeremiah's day, it was the actual mud that was up to his waist. But in Jesus' own life, um, it's not that he needs to be delivered from mud on his waist. He needs to be taken out of the pit of death, right? And so I think this just reinforces what we were saying before. When you see Jeremiah, he suffering on behalf of his message, suffering um, the rejection of, his, of the people. What you're seeing is um, not just an example for us to follow, but you're seeing here is what the Messiah is going, he's going to undergo similar sufferings to Jeremiah. Um, and he really, even though he's not sunk in mud and mire, he's going to be sunk into the pit, um, into the maze. And then what's going to happen? Well, that's, Jeremiah shows us that too. That's right. Jeremiah has been sunk down into this mud in the cistern, but there is a, at least a little vindication coming from him, for him, as you pointed out earlier. So we'll continue in the text. We're in Jeremiah 38, now at verse 7. When Evid Melech, the Ethiopian, a eunuch who was in the king's house, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern, the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Evid Melech went from the king's house and said to the king, My lord the king, these men have done evil in all that they did to Jeremiah the prophet by casting him into the cistern, and he will die there of hunger, for there is no bread left in the city. Then the king commanded Evid Melech, the Ethiopian, Take 30 men with you from here and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. So Evid Melech took the men with him and went to the house of the king to a wardrobe in the storehouse and took from there old rags and worn out clothes, which he let down to Jeremiah in the cistern by ropes. Then Evid Melech the Ethiopian said to Jeremiah, 
but the rags enclosed between your armpits and the ropes. Jeremiah did so. Then they drew Jeremiah up with ropes and lifted him out of the cistern, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. That's through verse 13 of chapter 38, the least mini vindication, I think is the term you used, Pastor Appold, for Jeremiah. So it, it starts with a man, Evid Melech the Ethiopian. It's at least a little striking to me that it's not one of the people of Judah who's there begging for Jeremiah's life, but it's an Ethiopian. Do we know anything about him and, and what he does here? Uh, well, the, I think you brought up the most important point, which is he is not uh, uh, one of Jeremiah. He is not a Jew uh, or a Judean. I think Jew is a term that's going to, we're kind of using that anachronistically, right? Um, but he is a foreigner. He's a Gentile, Ethiopian. He's an African uh, who is, for some reason, serving in the king's court, um, had been brought into the king's service. And he's the one who says, we should save the prophet. Right. So it's not the Judeans, but it's the outsider. It's the Gentile who actually lifts him up. Um, Jeremiah's word is not welcome among the people of his own city. He came to his own and his own knew him not. Um, but it is, in some sense, received by the Ethiopian who wants to say, hey, this is a, you know, we don't we're not told. And the Ethiopian you know, loved to listen to Jeremiah. He believed every word. But by his actions, he shows that he must have thought there's something special about Jeremiah. He shouldn't just be left to die. We should lift him up. So you, you mentioned earlier, Pastor Apple, that we've got here a, another type of Christ, but on the other side, this is vindication or even resurrection. How does this account from Jeremiah's ministry, how does it give us that type of Christ's resurrection? Yeah, the, well, if you, if you can follow through the Psalm 69 being sunk down, stuck in the pit, stuck in the mud as a, uh, a type of, it's a living death. I mean, he's not physically dying. Um, and so he's not here being raised back. Um, he's not rising from the dead, but he is rising back up um, and he is being delivered from his enemies. So in that sense, it is this mini resurrection, the prophet, the ultimate prophet who's coming. Um, the one who Moses spoke of long ago is not just gonna he's me he's not just gonna experience a living death and a mini resurrection um, but he's gonna have the full deal right he's gonna fall completely under God's judgment but also he's gonna be vindicated um, by the Lord too what the what the Ethiopian does here it reminded me sort of in a ahead of time of what Jesus talks about in Matthew 25 where he's got the the sheep and the goats he's got the sheep on the the right and the goats on the left and he says to the sheep among other things that whatever you did to the least of these my brothers and, and Jeremiah is certainly one of the least of Jesus brothers you did to me and among those things is that you you know you visited me in prison or you you took care of me you know and I think you see it again ahead of what Jesus says but an example here from this Ethiopian this this servant in the king's house of of that of taking care of the Lord's messengers and he does it for Jeremiah here yeah, again, th think of what we were saying before the break. With Jer In Jeremiah's life, you see that the message and the messenger aren't kept separate, right? So Jeremiah doesn't never says, look, I'm just, I'm just saying this stuff, okay? Um, he embodies it. And so, so too, the reception of Jeremiah's words 
to believe Jeremiah's words is also going to mean to, um, you know, to receive him um, and to take care of him. And you think about what this means um, in the life of the church. Um, it means, of course, right, Tim, that everyone should receive us as as kings, right? Um, that's what it means. No, <laughs> no but but, um, but congregations do care, and they show their love for the pastor's words, not just by saying, wow, I, I love to hear it, um, but by actually receiving the, the man himself. And that embodied um, reception is, is actually, in a lot of cases, um, more profound. It's a, it's a deeper kind of a connection than just saying, hey, liked to hear the message today, Pastor. Mm. Now, in the middle of, of both of these interactions, on the one hand, you've got the officials of the king who are ready to kill Jeremiah, and then you've got Evid, the, Evid Melech, the Ethiopian, who wants to take care of Jeremiah. King Zedekiah has been in the middle of both of them. And, and on the one hand, he said, I can't do anything to stop you. Go ahead and do what you're going to him. And then now with Evid Melech, he said, okay, take him, rescue him. Now Zedekiah gets a chance to actually interact with Jeremiah himself. And that's where the rest of our text goes. And we really, I think, get some some insight into Zedekiah and, and again, him as an actor. So let's, let's see what the text has to say to us. This is the rest of the chapter now, beginning at verse 14. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, will you not you will not listen to me? Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As the Lord lives, who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel. If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hands of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them, and they deal cruelly with me with me. Jeremiah said, You shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon, and were saying, Your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. Then Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, Let no one know of these words, and you shall not die. If the officials hear that I have spoken with you, and come to you, and say to you, Tell us what you said to the king, and what the king said to you. Hide nothing from us, and we will not put you to death. Then you shall say to them, I made a humble plea to the king that he would not send me back to the house of Jonathan to die there. Then all the officials came to Jeremiah and asked him, and he answered them as the king had instructed him. So they stopped speaking with him, for the conversation had not been overheard. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. That's the rest of Jeremiah chapter 38, verses 14 to 28. 
So, Pastor Appled, we've seen Zedekiah do this on multiple occasions in the book of Jeremiah. He he goes to Jeremiah, say he asks for prayer, he'll ask for a word from the Lord. He often does it in secret as he as he does here. What what's Zedekiah up to here, do you think? Yeah, I, I think uh, this is why knowing some of that uh, history that we started with is is helpful. Um, the city is besieged by the Babylonians. You got the Judeans on the one hand, sounds like they're pretty zealous to fight. We've got to fight. We've got to fight. We've got to fight. You've got Jeremiah saying, you've got to surrender. You've got to surrender. You've got to surrender. And Zedekiah is caught in between it all, right? Do I listen to my advisors? Do I listen to the prophet? Do I, you know, come up with my own uh, plans? And so it's this repetition of coming back. You you mentioned that this is not the first time he's done this with Jeremiah. Seems to me, Tim, that he that he keeps coming to Jeremiah in the hope of, well, maybe now Jeremiah will will say something different. Maybe now, maybe all these different voices will somehow kind of miraculously all come together and I won't have to make a hard choice. And the problem is, at least for Zechariah, this is the problem. That doesn't happen, right? Jeremiah does not, you almost get the picture Zedekiah saying, Jeremiah, please tell me that we should fight because then I don't have to choose between you and the, you know, the Judeans. But Jeremiah says, no, it's change. It's just like I told you before and you didn't listen before, um, but I'm going to tell it to you again. And it, again, it's, you can, you, you do feel sympathetic with Zedekiah because we've all been in these situations where you want, um, you know, you know, okay, I've got a hard choice to make. Um, I want to make everyone, I want to please everyone and, and keep everything um, going smoothly, but some, sometimes it doesn't work. And you can hear his fear of the Judeans uh, coming out. And so he can't bring himself really. And the, you'll cover this tomorrow, um, but we'll spoil, I'll spoil it for whoever your next guest is. Zedekiah does not surrender to the Chaldeans and he meets a terrible, um, a terrible outcome. Yeah. I mean, I, there's, there's a part of me that, that does want to feel sorry for Zedekiah because, you know, unlike Jehoiakim, who we saw in, in chapter 36, when Jehoiakim, had that scroll of Jeremiah in front of him and he was having it read to him, you know, his response was to cut it in pieces and burn it piece by piece in the fire. And on the one hand, you know, at least Zedekiah, it seems, wants to hear from Jeremiah. He's, he's willing to listen to Jeremiah, but still he, he just, he won't make, as you said, I think you put it well, he won't make that hard decision, or at least what seems to be a hard decision in human terms, to ignore this human wisdom given to him by his advisors, let's fight, and to simply trust the word of the Lord, that even at this late date, I mean, this is this is what I think amazes me about this, is that even at this late date, when the doom is imminent, if Zedekiah will turn and listen and believe at this late date, his life will be spared. And, and even, you know, I mean, you and your house will live. It, it almost sounds like, you know, it's going to be, I put this in air quotes, okay, the, the di- disaster, the destruction won't be as bad if you'll just listen right now and surrender. There's still that word. I mean, it's not maybe much hope, it seems, but there's still that word of hope. And still Zedekiah, for all of his questioning, his indecision, he just won't listen. He won't believe what the Lord has given him to believe. Yeah, and I mean, think of the um, maybe another example of this is King Herod with John the Baptist, right? Remember 
how he he wants to listen to John, but at the same time, and, and then he makes the promise to his um, to his stepdaughter, right? Whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you. And as soon as she says John the Baptist's head on a platter, he you know he wants to go back on it, but he's afraid of embarrassing himself in front of all his guests. And so you have this the fear of um, of man, the fear of losing esteem of status. And I, I think, you know, Zedekiah is a little bit different than King Herod here, but he does, what King wants to go to his military advisors and say, we need to wave the white flag. Yeah. You know, they're, of course, they're going to say, you can't do that. You're, you can't be a coward. You have, we have to fight. Um, but this is the, the humbling that is, should come over he can't humble himself. Um, and I, I think, you know, it, I think it's good to, to feel some of the sympathy here. But what you see with Zedekiah, what you see with Jehoiakim are different responses, different reactions to um, when the word of the Lord is rejected. Um, what what do people scramble for? What do they put their trust in? What do they put their confidence in, um, their hope in? Well, some hope in um, their own political you know, we've made a treaty with Egypt and the Egyptians are going to come and save us, but gosh darn it. Or we're going to do it ourselves, right? We're Judeans and we've fought many battles before and we're going to do it here and now. Um, but without God's word, all of that stuff, it's like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an uphill battle. It's, um, it's striving for some kind of certainty that just isn't there. And what happens then is you get pulled in so many different directions, and you can't make a decision and you're left, you know, you're, you're going to hear in the next chapter, the terrible fate that awaits him. He's going to be sunk in the mire. That was interesting that that description comes up. You're going to sink in the mud and nobody's going to pull you out. Yeah, that, that vision that Jeremiah says that he's seen if... Zedekiah refuses to surrender, refuses to listen to the word of the Lord. You know, what's, what's striking about is Zedekiah is being pulled in all these different directions. You know, he's got he's got his officials who want him to do one thing. Here in this text, he says he's afraid of the Judeans who have already deserted to the Chaldeans. I mean, over and over again, with all these various directions that he's being pulled, Jeremiah is really the only constant thing, the only constant voice in his life speaking the word of the Lord, which I, I think, you know, Despite Zedekiah's being pulled in all these directions, there's a measure of comfort in that that obviously he failed to to recognize and to to make use of, but that constantly the word of the Lord is is sounding to us what is good and true and right. I mean, even now, you know, it, Zedekiah says, "Look, I'm afraid of these Judeans who've already deserted," and Jeremiah says, "Don't worry about that. Don't be afraid. Simply obey what God has said. Listen to what God has said, and it's going to be well with you." And I mean, I think you know. Just hearing Jeremiah repeat the truth over and over and over again is a good reminder for us as Christians today when we are being pulled in a variety of directions and are faced with indecision to find our confidence in, well, what has God said? And and no matter what it may seem, no matter what those you know military commanders might say, to find that as our foundation. Yeah, I think um, I think that's that's well said, Tim. I mean, one of the things when you're reading the kind of doomy, gloomy prophecies of Jeremiah, you kind of say, "Well, what are we? What do I do with this? Right? What do I? How do I? Is this just historical example? You know, well, that happened once long ago. Um, what's kind of the um, what's the application of Scripture here for the church and for individual Christians? And I think part of it is just what you said, which is 
okay, the Lord has not prophesied in the same kind of detail the destruction of the United States of America. That's right, but we don't have that message. So we're not called to go out and preach that like Jeremiah did. Um, and we're also not called to, I don't know, surrender things um, like Zedekiah was told to do. But you do have the same um, certainty in God's word and that God doesn't, he never speaks idly, right? I, and so I think one of the things to see in, and one of the applications here is that God's word does not contain idle threats, um, but it also doesn't contain idle promises either. And that's, that's so important for us uh, because we live in times where there are lots of voices that want to pull Christians and the church in different directions. We need to pursue this or that or the other thing, and then it'll all work out all right for us. And um, the, the certainty of the Christian is, has always got to come back to not what makes the most kind of worldly sense, but what has God's, what has God spoken? What has God said? And I'm going to trust that even if it means some embarrassment, even if it means that, you know, sometimes I have to make choices and do things that are very unpopular. Well, I know that I've got a word of the Lord to, mm. to hold me up. Mm. Yeah. That, I think that's a very excellent ac application of this text. In terms of the, the way it ends, where, you know, Zedekiah hears, obey, this is what will happen. If you don't obey, this is what will happen. Zedekiah has this final instruction for Jeremiah, which I think, you know, given the way he's behaved so far, makes perfect sense. He doesn't want his officials to find out that he's having this conversation, because then he'll be dragged down with Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah <laughs> ag agrees to it. Is is there anything Anything going on there? I mean, I, I suppose as I, as I look at it, it, just this is Jeremiah submitting to the authority that's that's over him in a way that's, you know, it, it's not ungodly what he does, I don't think. Do you have any thoughts on that final interaction between Zedekiah and Jeremiah? I mean, just in terms of like going along with, yeah. hey, if they ask you about this, don't say anything to anybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I wondered about that as I read it too. Um, it could be that Jeremiah is just like, whatever, you know, it's it's... <laughs> Look, the the end is upon us, and you want you want to still sort of play this game because that that is sort of between the lines. There is Zedekiah is coming to Jer. It's a secret, private, you know, clandestine meeting. He doesn't want anybody to know, and so he he asks Jeremiah, and Jeremiah doesn't tell him anything new, um, and it's not like he's hiding from the other guys what he's told them all along. So I think it could be that Jeremiah says okay, if that's what you want, I won't do it. It's not, that doesn't really change anything. Or, you know, it could be that Jeremiah knows, yeah, if I, if I reveal that the king came to me privately, then I'm going to betray the trust of the king. So he could be just going along with it to, to keep the king's um, request, so to speak. Sure. Okay. That, yeah, I think that that's helpful. As we as we wrap up this morning, we got about three minutes here, Pastor Apple. Do you, you've already helped us with some application of this text. Again, help us to to see what's happening to Jeremiah, how he responds faithfully, and and how this chapter as a whole points us to Christ our Savior. Yeah. The I, I think again the best way um, to to see these as is to think of Jeremiah as a, a Christ type, a shadow of the Messiah who would come later. Um, and and he, uh, Jeremiah suffers along with the city. 
um, he goes, the exile that's coming, the judgment that's falling, um, nobody escapes from it, right? But the, the way through it is um, the path of trust in the Lord, obedience to his word. And I think what, what you see with Jeremiah is that um, you see a, a prefigurement of Christ, but you also see um, this, this is in some, to some extent what Christians should expect, right? We shouldn't be surprised, St. Peter says, when the fiery trial comes upon us. And at the same time, um, there is, so there is the station um, that we, we don't simply escape all um, suffering in the world, right? Jesus says, take, whoever would follow me, let him take up his cross um, and bear it every day, right? Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Um, and so just a I think that is a, a, to have the proper expectations um, that we're not always going to be met with wonderful success and great welcoming, but there also is uh, encouragement there. It's not just, well, you know, grit your teeth, uh, grin and bear it, um, but that there is, um, God does take care of his, he, he watches over his prophets. He takes care of his people. Um, and even though he disciplines them, um, he, he disciplines us just like he disciplined the people of Israel, they're good. So um, Jeremiah, even though there is a lot of the doom and what we're calling doom and gloom, there is also the hope. If you humble yourself before the Lord, he will He will lead us out, he will bring us out of exile. Um, there is a life after death. Pastor David Appold is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 38, verses 1 to 28. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, good to be on with you, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, comments on the series, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app. The open mic feature there allows you to send up to a 60-second message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>